our fall retreat, I do think was a good time had by all, right? And I was, as we turn our gaze to a new season here, school starting back up, the fall is upon us, and um, I was just thinking how, how good it is to have rhythms in life, isn't it? Something like our fall retreat is a good marker as year by year as we go by, um, to think about, okay, it's in kind of a new season. Um, sometimes that's a time for change, time to reflect. And as we, as we do that, I, I was just, uh, I think it would be good for us to, to go back to some gospel basics this morning. Um, I'm always amazed at how easy it is for us to forget what the gospel is if we do not repeatedly preach it. Um, and I was provoked in my thinking along these lines last week by a question that was asked about Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23, where Jesus says this, "'Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven.'" But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And here Jesus is giving a very, a very sobering warning that it is possible to deceive oneself into thinking that, that I am a Christian, that I am a follower of Christ, that I belong in the kingdom because of criteria one, criteria two, criterion three. And it's a shock, isn't it? Because their claim in this passage is, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? cast out demons, do many mighty works. And yet Jesus says, I never knew you. And depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So despite all of the, the trappings and all of the activity, Jesus is warning, he's speaking to people who think they are Christians when they're not. And so... This sobering passage highlights the need to return to the gospel, and I think regularly, what it means to be a Christian. The name Christian itself refers to a Christ follower. And I want to I approach the gospel today then as a matter of discipleship. And a, the, the word disciple in the New Testament is the word for learner, but but it's not this definition, like a dictionary definition, that really drives the word. The word disciple means an adherent. It's someone who, who hears teaching and commits themselves to it. That's who disciples are. They are adherents or followers. What does it mean, then, to follow Jesus? I want to point you today to Jesus' clearest explanation of what it means to be his disciple. Jesus' clearest explanation of the path his followers must take. And it's found in Luke chapter 9, verses 23 through 26. Luke chapter 9, verses 23 through 26. I want you to consider what following Jesus costs you, what following Jesus gains you, and what following Jesus assures you. Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 23. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? 
For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we cry mercy today. Give us ears to hear your word spoken to us and let no heart be hardened. Amen. Now, let me give Jesus' words a, a context. Jesus is in Galilee, his home region. He is teaching, he is healing, he is calling disciples to himself. And many are asking this question, who is this? Who is this person? This is the most important question that they could have been asking, and it's still the most important question that we can ask and answer today. Who is Jesus? And in chapter 9, verse 18, Jesus asks his disciples, who do the crowds say that I am? Because there were a lot of rumors out there, and Jesus is asking, what are the rumors What's the word on the street? What are people saying? How are people answering this question, who is this? And so the disciples answer, verse 19, and they answered, well, these are the rumors, Master. Some say John the Baptist. You say, well, how could that be? Unless by this time, John the Baptist has been executed. But others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. But then Jesus said to them, but who do you say that I am? Now this is important, right, for these 12 men, these disciples. Because while there are all these rumors going on, Jesus is provoking in them and stirring them, have you answered this question? And how do you answer it? Who do you say that I am? And in this moment of divine revelation, Peter answers, the Christ of God. You are the Messiah. You are the Savior King. Now, Matthew chapter 16, we have another record of this same conversation, and Matthew gives us a little more detail, and and he says that, that Jesus actually responds to Peter's reply with, you did not come up with this on your own, Simon, but, the, but my Father in heaven has shown you this. You're not speaking for yourself. But in 921, verse 21, Jesus strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Why tell no one? This isn't the only time Jesus says this. Jesus says this many times throughout the Gospels. He will work a miracle. He will do this thing, and then he'll say, don't tell anybody. And of course, they always do. They go run and tell somebody. But why does he instruct them this way? Here's the answer to that question. Because everyone had an agenda for Jesus. Everyone has an agenda for him. And their agendas are not God's agenda for Jesus. What's God's agenda? What's the Father's agenda? That's right here in verse 22. He must suffer many things. He has to be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. He must be killed, and on the third day, he must be raised. Now, the disciples don't understand everything that Jesus is saying, and here's why. They don't have categories for this yet. Because most of their thinking is in tune with all of these other agendas. 
they don't have the categories for a Messiah whom Peter has just said, you are the Christ, you are the Messiah. They don't have categories for a Christ, a Messiah who's going to be crucified, rejected, buried, and raised from the dead. They don't get it. But Jesus understands that if, if this spreads, this news that he is the Messiah, he is the Christ, that everybody will react, the mobs will react by trying to enthrone him. That's their agenda. And we get that, don't we? I don't think any of us can say that we would have gotten and we would have been any different. We would have wanted to see Jesus enthroned and the nation delivered. That's what they want. That's what they're expecting. These are their agendas. But Jesus is on God's timetable. And his goal was not throwing off Rome. It was not setting up the nation, the kingdom, in that way. So when Jesus addresses the crowds in verse 23, he is challenging the popular, the hip motives of his day for following him. Because everybody is following him because he's the rising star. And all of their expectations and all of their agendas for Jesus are earthbound. They're worldly. And you've got to understand, Jesus drew the crowds. This is not just some small localized event. Jesus had gained fame throughout Palestine and even within the empire to some extent for everything that was going on. Had Jesus come during our days, he would have been on the front of every tabloid. Jesus would have been People Magazine's Man of the Year. Jesus would be followed by the paparazzi. He'd be in everybody's Twitter feeds. Entertainment tonight would be on Jesus Watch. That's the kind of impact he was having. People knew who he was. That's why when he taught, often he would get in a boat. Remember these scenes from the Gospels? Jesus gets in a boat, shoves off from the shore, because everybody wants to touch him because he's healing people. And to even be able to teach, he has to get some physical distance, a barrier between him and people, the crowds. And so sometimes during his, his ministry, Jesus is speaking specifically to his disciples, the 12, like we've just seen in the verses before these. Sometimes he speaks to the Jewish leadership as a whole. Oftentimes, most of the time, that's confrontational, corrective. And sometimes Jesus speaks to the crowds, to just everybody who will hear. And here, Jesus is speaking to all. And he's defining what it means to really follow him, what it means to belong to him. So following Jesus means more than learning. Listen to him talk. It means more than traveling because people are following him, moving around with Jesus. Many of them are dropping whatever they're doing just to continue to watch him from town to town, countryside to countryside. It's more than leaving a career. If Jesus is the Christ, if he is the Messiah, and Christ himself is headed for suffering, rejection, and death, then anyone who follows him must embrace the same path. Verse 23, I want you to consider what following Jesus costs you, what it costs you. There is a cost. And Jesus was always up front with the cost. Just the opposite of most marketing and selling techniques. Jesus is always up front with the cost. In fact, Jesus is so up front with the cost you'd almost think that Jesus doesn't care if anybody follows him or not. Jesus doesn't just 
fine print, by the way, this is what it'll cost you. Jesus headlines his call to disciples with, this will cost you. (laughs) That's what he leads with. It'll cost you. If anyone would come after me, this is the, in a sense, this is defining what being his disciple is. If anyone would come after me, if anyone wants to follow me, if anyone wants to take the path that I take, which most people are thinking his path is a path to reigning, to glory, to ruling, to setting up a throne in Jerusalem, If anyone wants to take this path, sign me up. I want to be in your cabinet. Well, I want to be an attache. I want to be be a general in your army. If anyone wants to take the path I take, this isn't so much an invitation to follow. Jesus isn't saying, come on, guys. I want you to take this path and Okay, this is the cost. This is what this isn't recruiting. He's saying, if uh, not so much an invitation, but he's drawing a line in the sand for anyone, for all those who say, "Yeah, I want to be in your cabinet. I want to be in your army. I want to, I want to be a part of this." For anyone who would say that, I want to follow. I want to be your disciple. He's drawing a line in the sand. We would say the same for anyone who says, I'm, I want to be a Christian. Man, that looks like a great organization. Man, they're doing a lot of things in the community. Man, they know how to, look, they got a jumpy house or whatever it's called. They got big kids slides and man, I want to be a part of that. I want to be a Christian. That's being a Christian, isn't it? And Jesus is saying, He's drawing a line in the sand and he's saying, man, if you want to follow me, if you want to walk this path, if you're going to adhere yourself to me and my teachings, then let him, and he lays out three steps, and they're not really three steps in a progression, but they are three pieces of this following him that go together. This is what it costs you. Let him deny himself and take up his cross daily, and follow me. They're really all one act. Denying yourself is taking up your cross, which is following Jesus. In essence, this is all the same thing. Let him deny himself. Now, I think we'd all agree that self-discipline in life is a good thing. We have to have some self-discipline. And it's harder in some areas of life than others. And certain areas of life are harder for some people than others, whether that's how much TV you watch or how much food you eat or how much coffee you drink or how much money you spend or how fast you drive. Whatever those things are, we know that self-control and self-discipline is fundamental to living well to surviving the day. This is why children are children and need adults because they don't have self-discipline. They don't have that. That's part of training and growth, maturity. So we know that self-discipline is good and necessary for life, but Jesus, when he says, let him deny himself, is not talking about making life hard for yourself. He isn't talking about some self-inflicted punishment. Fasting. Now, there is a right way to fast. But much fasting that is done in the world and in other religions and even under the name of Christianity is done as a self-infliction, a punishment. The Roman Catholic Church teaches a doctrine of penance, That somehow by doing these harsh things to yourself, by harming yourself, by bringing about the self-inflicted punishment, 
you can alleviate some of the wrong that you've done. And that stretches all the way back to the second, third centuries. Much of the um, monasteries and, and the rise of monkhood came from this kind of mentality. And there's a lot of historical background to that, but, but it carries on. But it is really a reflection of human nature that somehow, that by inflicting myself, by punishing myself, I can somehow balance the scales, I can make up for the wrong that I've done. Jesus is not talking about self-punishment, giving up coffee, celibacy. In fact, you could do any of these all day, every day, for a long time, and it would never please God. It would, even we could say, it would only feed your pride, your own sense of self-righteousness. And most importantly, it could never change you. It never deals with the heart. You can't do that from the outside. And even if you could, you couldn't accomplish it. When Jesus says, let him deny himself, he means giving up self-rule, self-mastery. Jesus means giving up your claimed right of being in charge of your own life. Hmm. Now that's a lot harder. It means forsaking your agendas and your priorities and forsaking any claim to self-importance, any claim to comfort. It is not putting yourself first. It is not being your own master. That's what Jesus is talking about. Let him deny himself. Not only is this harder than self-punishment, it is impossible, ultimately. It is impossible for any of us to do this without divine help. And yet it is Jesus' call to follow him. It's where it begins. Let him deny himself. The essence then of denying myself is taking up my cross daily. Now let's think about the cross for a moment. Everybody who heard Jesus knew what he was talking about when he said, take up his cross. You see, the cross in our day is like this kind of chic, cool symbol that we put on buildings and wear on necklaces. But the better equivalent will be a swastika. Do we like swastikas? We don't like swastikas because swastikas represent a horrific period of history in our world, a horrific event of murdering millions and millions of people because of their ethnicity. A swastika represents evil, and to us it represents something abhorrent. That's what the cross would have been like in Jesus' day. It would have received the same response, the same reaction as you have when you see a swastika. It was a symbol of horror, degradation. Nobody wore crosses. No one got tattoos with little crosses, you know, wherever you get them. They didn't have those. That was bad. And when Jesus said, take up his cross... Instead of necklaces and tattoos, he was talking about an invention of torture that had been invented by the Persians, that had been reworked by the Romans. The cross was a painful and humiliating way to die. It was, a kind, it was an execution for criminals and rebels. So taking up your cross is not talking about Bearing up under personal trials. And the Bible has a lot to say about enduring personal trials. 
But that's not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus, when he says he must take up his cross, is not talking about he's going to have to endure some difficult things in life like cancer or a nagging spouse or unemployment or rebellious kids or a failed career. As hard as these things may be, and as much as we understand that suffering is part of God's purpose in this life, that's not what Jesus is talking about here. That's not what he means by your cross. When Jesus says, take up your cross, he is pointing to the fact that before being crucified, a condemned criminal was forced to publicly demonstrate his submission to the state by dragging his own means of execution to the place of execution. That's what Rome would do to Jesus. That's why we have, in the gospel accounts, Jesus dragging his own cross. Jesus is saying that being his disciple requires daily submission to him, even to the point of death. It means every day adhering yourself to Jesus and his teachings and taking up a cross that is going to be abhorrent to many and carrying it. That's what Jesus is talking about. So taking up my cross actually means looking at all of these other difficulties in life, illness, disease, disagreeable people, unemployment, failed relationships. It's looking at all of these as someone who is prepared to die daily in submission to Jesus' lordship. So as someone who has taken up my cross, how do I look at failure in my life or people who have failed me? How do I look at a disease? How do I evaluate our culture? How do I understand government and voting? I must see them all as somebody who is carrying a cross. Who has given up all claims to self-mastery. So these two verbs then, look at them again. Deny and take up. They are written in a way, in a verb tense, They are written in a way that means that they are fundamental decisions that must be made. In other words, taking up your cross may be daily practice, but the decision to take up your cross is a once-for-all decision. Forsaking self-rule may involve a regular Daily, hourly struggle, but the decision is a once-for-all decision that is made. The last step here in verse 23 is an ongoing action. So deny himself, take up his cross daily. These are fundamental decisions that must be made. Everyone comes to that fork in the road, and Jesus is always presenting the fork in the road. But this last phrase, let him be following me, is what he says. Take up his cross daily and follow me. And let him be following. This is the, the, the picture, and it's really the summary, right? The fundamental decision to deny myself the fundamental decision to take up my cross daily then results in or is worked out in a ongoing following Jesus. Because following Jesus is a life of obedience. 
It's a life of allegiance. It's a life of following him and constantly looking at what Jesus says and what he has revealed in the New Testament and, and being corrected and, and believing his promises and clinging to him in faith. It's a lifelong journey. But Jesus doesn't make it easy, does he? See, so many want to remove all of the barriers. So many want to remove all of the offenses, all in the name of bringing people to Jesus. And you just can't do it. We, we, we want to give them candy. We want to we entertain them. We want to flatter them and appeal to their needs and, and uh, their they themselves being the center of things. Now, there's nothing wrong with being hospitable, okay, as a church. We talked a little bit about this up at the retreat this weekend. There's nothing wrong with being hospitable. I hope anyone would find Crossway a hospitable people and a hospitable place. But our goal is not to put a person at the center of their own thinking. Never. That's bad for them. That's harmful to them. You can't do that and love others. Loving others is not, not helping them worship themselves. It's good to be hospitable, but it's not, it's not why we're here. It's not why we're called. God is at the center of things. And that means you can't be. And that is the rightest thing in the universe. The reason that it is wrong for you to be at the center of your life and thinking is because God says that only he should be at the center of your life and thinking. And it can't be wrong for God to do that because that would mean that you should do that. You should be there. And that would be untrue of God. He would be speaking falsely. In Luke chapter 13, verse 24, Jesus said this, Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Why not? Because everyone wants to enter with their self-respect intact. Everyone wants to enter the narrow door with all the baggage of pride and self-exaltation and comfort, and they can't fit in. And the only person who get in such the narrow door is the person who just drops everything and believes that they have to lose themselves. So Jesus makes it hard. Jesus says, you want to come after me, there's a cost. And he leads with it. It's the bold headline. It will cost you. And that's the hard news. That's the difficulty. But here's the good news. There is also gain. There is also gain. That's the trade-off. Following Jesus costs you everything, but it gains you more than everything. That's the great mystery of being Jesus' follower. It gains you. What following Jesus gains you? Consider this, verses 24 and 25. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. So Jesus offers this kind of paradox as a way of explaining why the cost is worth it. Why in the end, it's not really a cost. The truth of this seemingly impossible trade-off is built on the illusion that gaining the whole world, gaining the world, is saving your life. That life consists of what you can get and this self-preservation, this self-exaltation. That if I can gain the assurances 
of my self-esteem, of my fellow human beings, humanity, if I can gain wealth, if I can gain financial security, if I can gain power, I am gaining security for my life. It is an illusion. The truth of the matter is actually the opposite. Saving life, securing myself, is losing my life. It is trading away my life. True life. Eternal life. Security. Losing my life, denying myself, picking up this cross, which is submission to Jesus' lordship and following him, is saving my life. It looks like death. It looks bloody. It looks like the end. But in reality, you peel back the curtain and Jesus does here. And he says, it is saving your life. And note this, that Jesus is not saying any form of self-sacrifice gains you life. He is not saying that those who give their lives for the betterment of society or political convictions or even religious causes will save their lives and reap eternal benefit. What does he say in verse 24? But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. You gotta lose your life for his sake, which means his exaltation, his lordship. Verse 25, for what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? In fact, you can't do both. You cannot gain the whole world and follow Christ and gain your life. You can't do both. There's no middle path or third way. You are doing one or the other. And Jesus is laying out a very clear choice. You can't profit. Here's the gain. Here's Jesus' word, gain for gain, profit. What does it profit a person? If they gain the whole world, and then this, and he's being hyperbole, right? No one's gonna gain the whole world. But he's saying, even if you could, even if you could gain every bit of accolade, every piece of money and property and wealth and prestige, even if you could gain the whole thing, you would be forfeiting your soul. You would make that trade-off. You can't profit from gaining the whole world if you forfeit yourself. But that's the lie. That's the great illusion. Is that I, I am keeping myself I am preserving my freedom. I'm preserving my rights. Jesus says you forfeit your life. You give it up. So this is what following Jesus gains you. Real life. Eternal life. Your soul Lastly, consider what following Jesus assures you, verse 26. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. And Jesus is looking forward to a day of judgment. That's what the glory is here. It's a revealing of his glory Something that was veiled in this life as Jesus was speaking this, these words. It's a revealing of his glory and it's a dealing with humanity. At the moment that Jesus was saying this, he was veiled. His glory was hidden. But when he comes in his glory, he comes to judge mankind. That's what this title, Son of Man, is pointing to. 
It is the one member of the human race who has the authority to judge the human race. He is the Son of Man. And when he comes in his glory to judge mankind, everyone will see what his followers accepted by faith. His identity. Who is this? And his worth. You are the Christ of God. You are the Messiah. You are the Savior King. All the world will see that. Jesus describes the event in Matthew 25 this way. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. All of humanity, there's only two groups, sheep and goats. And when Jesus says here, ashamed, right, this, is, uh, this is a word we, we probably have to, to work a little bit to really appreciate and understand. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, what I'm saying, what I claim to be true. When Jesus says this ashamed, we usually think about feeling embarrassed or you know, oh, I'm ashamed of that and kind of self-consciousness. It's not what Jesus is talking about. Ashamed here means to despise and reject. It's to say this is not honorable or respectable. That's that's shameful. The cross was shameful. The swastika is shameful. Jesus is saying to despise me Whoever despises me and my words and counts them as worthless in comparison to gaining the world, that's who he's talking about. That's what he means by shame. Shame is the opposite of boasting in Jesus. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Being ashamed of Jesus and his words are just the opposite. It's this, and and maybe you say, Oh, I don't, I don't despise Jesus. I like Jesus. I, mean, I think Jesus is great. I mean, I don't know if he's everything you claim him to be. But I think Jesus is great. I mean, he was a good teacher. He's right up there with Gandhi, other figures. But I really think that we despise Jesus most often with a shrug. That's despising him. It doesn't require you to hate the king of glory to despise him. All it takes is kind of a mediocre shrug. That's despising one who is glorious. That is being ashamed of Jesus. There's no such thing as healthy respect for Jesus. To like Jesus but not follow him is to patronize him. Is to be ashamed of him. Jesus, yeah, shrug. Yeah, he's, no, Jesus, he's cool, that's all right. Shrug. The shrug will get you an eternity of damnation. That's what Jesus is saying. Jesus doesn't allow us to shrug. Jesus says, if you're ashamed of me and my words, I will be ashamed of you. And again, Jesus doesn't mean, oh, I'm embarrassed this person said they knew me and they just, they don't, I don't know them. I don't, Father, sorry, I I feel ashamed of this person. It's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying he will despise you. He will reject you. I never knew you. That is an eternity of not only separation from God, but that separation from his glory. His kingdom is is an eternity of suffering, suffering divine judgment. Following Jesus assures you 
of his approval. Taking up your cross means you have truly followed him, that you have truly given yourself to him, that you really belong to him because you will, you will bear the rejection with him. And this means acceptance on that day when he comes in glory. Following Jesus assures you of his approval. So the disciples' path is a costly one, but the trade-off is worth it, right? The trade-off is worth it. I mentioned earlier that I wanted to, to preach the gospel as a matter of discipleship, what the path of discipleship really is. But I but got to keep in mind here that Jesus doesn't say everything about the gospel in these words. He doesn't talk about grace. He doesn't cover the truth that no one can see the cross for what it really is and Jesus for who he really is unless God's grace enables them to understand it, that it begins with God's kindness toward us, his grace. It's his power. It's his grace that saves us. Jesus doesn't talk about faith here. He doesn't talk about believing in him. And he does plenty in the Gospels, but he doesn't at this point. Because if he had, everybody in this crowd would have said, well, I believe in you. Jesus is really what he's defining as what that means to believe in him here. But he doesn't talk about faith, the necessity of trusting him. He doesn't even talk about repentance. You could say it's implicit in deny himself, take up his own cross, but Jesus doesn't even mention sin in these verses. There's also joy. Jesus doesn't talk about the delight and the joy that it is to belong to him, to know him in this life, to commune with him now. He doesn't talk about the peace that we are granted as his people. As we suffer these things, as we take up our cross and follow him, the peace that we gain in the midst of being rejected or facing persecution. He doesn't talk about that. He doesn't talk about forgiveness and the healing that we know and having our sins forgiven and cleansed. These are all essential parts of the gospel. But Jesus is here laying out a fundamental decision. He is, he is redefining and explaining and making sure we understand what discipleship truly is. What it really costs, what it really means to prevent false discipleship. To dispel the illusion that you can follow him and still be Lord of your own life. That's what Jesus is getting at here. and Why he's focused on these things. Because ultimately, following Jesus is an exchange it's a trade-off. You trade yourself for him. You trade your life to receive the life that he gives. My life doesn't mean anything. My life only means something if I have the life that you promise. Following Jesus is a trade-off of now for eternity. And isn't this exactly the path that Jesus walks himself? Isn't this what Jesus was saying? If you want to follow me, that's my path. Everyone else has the agendas. And if they find out you are the Christ of God, which is true, Peter... If they find that out, they don't understand it, they will have their own agendas for me. 
I'm on the Father's timetable. I'm, I'm according to the Father's plan. And the Father's plan first requires suffering and rejection and death. That's my path. And anyone who's going to follow me has to take that path. And I've already, for, he's already taken it. He's already taken that path. Jesus took up his cross to give up his own life for you. That was Jesus' exchange. That was his trade-off. He gave up his own life so that you and I could have life, so that we could know God, so that we could know that relationship with God for all eternity. Let's pray. Lord, life is at stake. Eternity is at stake, even today. And I pray, Lord, that you would, that you would take the words of your warning here in the Gospel of Luke. Lord, that you would, you would help every person to reflect on their own commitment that they would question, have I believed in illusion? Have I, have I denied myself? Have I taken up my cross? Am I following Jesus? Or do I love the world? Am I going to love the world? Am I going to accept its, its view of things? Lord, I pray that you would, you would penetrate hearts. And for those, Lord, who, who are your people, Lord, that they would be strengthened by their understanding of this gospel and this, this life that is, yes, suffering and is rejection. It is following you as master. But Lord, there is joy and there is peace in that. And in fact, Lord, we sing with joy today. We sing with thanksgiving in our hearts and pray with thanksgiving and praises because we understand that in following you, coming after you, that we gain life and that we are assured of, of your approval on that final day when all of humanity stands before you. In your name we say all of these things and ask for your help. Amen. Amen.